You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. When they first found him, I wish that they never found uh, had found him. I wish he was still missing because the outcome wasn't what we had hoped for. But I couldn't imagine not having a home. Shedding Light Podcast, born from a personal experience of a missing and murdered loved one. Three moms, Candy, Susie, and Angela, hell-bent on a mission to shed light on unsolved missing persons cases across Canada. You know, people don't realize when these people go, these loved ones go missing, that they affect you. You, you just don't get over it. And because we haven't found any bodies, because they're still missing, we've never grieved. We've never had funerals. We've never grieved. We're still grieving 36 years later. You know, you just don't get over it. Working with families, communities, authorities, and you, the public, to find the missing piece of the puzzle. Sharing the stories and theories behind these mysterious cases. And uncovering details the public has never heard before. Shedding Light Podcast found on a podcast platform near you. Hello and welcome to Fresh Hell. I'm Annie the American. And I'm Johanna the Austrian, and you just heard the promo for Shedding Light. And if you're a regular listener, you might already know that missing person cases are always extremely haunting for us and make us go down several rabbit holes. So I was really excited to find this podcast, and please give it a try and tell the three absolutely lovely ladies that we sent you. Mm-hmm, that's right, please do. And as always today, we want to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon members, Wendy Sanders. Thank you so much, Wendy. We really appreciate your support. And Michael R. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And if you would like to know more about our Patreon program, please listen until the end of this episode and we'll tell you all about it. Yes, because now... It's time to dive into the topic of this week's episode, and it does involve missing people and a mystery, or not. Let's see. <laughs> because today we want to talk about the disappearance of the lighthouse keepers at the Flannan Isle. Yeah, that's right. We love a good mystery, and you know, I love lighthouses. So let's, <laughs> let's begin at the beginning with uh, some background info. So come travel with us to this archipelago. <laughs> Just kidding. Archipelago. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just need a t-shirt now that just says like archipelago and make the letters look like little islands <laughs> just like all over the t-shirt. Anyway, this particular archipelago is off the Scottish coast and it's called the Flannan Islands or it's also known as the Seven Hunters. So you guessed it, it consists of seven main islands and they're split up into three groups. And I found this on Wikipedia, which is like my new best friend, but I will forever have trust <laughs> issues with it. It's my frenemy, Wikipedia. So the total combined area of the islands is approximately 50 hectares, which is 120 acres. 
So anyway, the big isle, the biggest of the of these islands, they're just, they're just basically rocks. They're like uninhabitable rocks in yeah, the North Atlantic much. that ships are in danger of crashing into. And the biggest one of them is approximately 17.5 hectares or 43 acres. And at the highest point, it is 88 meters or rising 289 feet above sea level. And that is, of course, Eileen Moore. Now, this Wikipedia article had the names of all of the islands, but you are very much mistaken if you think that I'm going to try to pronounce any of them. They are not that important for the story anyway. No, they're not. And you know what the thing is? Like, if someone Scottish were saying the name of the islands, it would be like actual mm. music to my ears. And I am not going to insult the people, the good people of Scotland today. If my friend Linda is listening, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, listen, it's, oh, okay. So Eileen Moore is not only the largest of the islands, but it's also the island that is the home of the infamous lighthouse. The islands are home for many birds, such as the Atlantic puffins, which my mom has eaten, uh, <laughs> petrels, northern fulmars, northern gannets, kittiwakes, and my absolute personal favorite bird name and least favorite nickname, the common shag. <laughs> I couldn't. Not. So the minke and pilot whales can often be seen in the waters, and there are also a number of dolphin species. So amazing. Nowadays, there are rabbit and sheep also inhabiting the more fertile and larger islands, but they were not native. They were brought over by men who wanted to make sure that the ships were able to navigate safely through the waters, the lighthouse keepers. More on them later. But for now, let's just say that the islands have not been nor are now inhabited by anybody except for lighthouse keepers and some shepherds now and then. What else is there to say about the Flannan Islands? They are islands in the North Atlantic. They're cold. They're windy. You're not going to find a pina colada for miles. And as I said, Eileen Moore is the largest and on it, you will also find St. Flannan Chapel. So there apparently used to be these regular pilgrimage uh, pilgrimages that took people to Eileen Moore as far back as the Middle Ages. And these pilgrimages included some very interesting customs. Like, for example, when you finally made your way up to the highest point of the island, you were supposed to take your hat off and then make a sunwise turn, or you had to circle the chapel on your knees this chapel, though, it's teeny, teeny, tiny, and it really doesn't even look like a chapel at all. We have some photos. It's basically like a, it's, I think it's pronounced a body. Is it a body? It's just a tiny little room made of stones. It's so tiny it was referred to as the dog kennel by the lighthouse keepers. Uh, yeah, so this chapel, I have to do air quotes here. Uh, it is believed that it was home to a holy man who lived on the island in the, either the 7th or 8th century. Yeah, and I think that's pretty much the only older building left there. Mm. And it's not really that interesting. So I'd say we talk about the lighthouse now. Because yeah. that's what we're here for. I agree. So it was built from 1895 to 1899 and it did cost around 6,900 British pounds to have it built but this amount of money did not only cover the lighthouse but also the construction of a landing place for the boats and a railway to transport goods, tools and material to the construction site and of course the railway was uh, later also used to transport whatever goods they needed at the lighthouse. 
Yes, remember we talked about a similar track system when we discussed our haunted lighthouse in St. Augustine episode. Yes, I remember, and it was very sad what happened to those kids. Oh yeah, it's awful. So the railway system on Eileen Moore was cable-hauled, and the whole thing was powered by a steam engine that was situated in a building that was a little shed next to the lighthouse. Landing on Eileen Moore is not easy at all, because they regularly have a very stormy sea there. And once the boats managed to land the construction material, or obviously later the goods, had to be hauled up the cliffs. So that's uh, a height of 45 meters or 148 feet. They did also construct a shore station on the Isle of Lewis, that's 32 kilometers or 20 miles west of Flannan Isle. This shore station did also include a home for the lighthouse keepers' wives or wives and children, if they had any, because the keepers did not take their families with them to Flannan. The island Louis was also home to a man named Roderick Mackenzie. He was a gamekeeper and he was paid eight pounds per year to look for any signs from the lighthouse. You know, signs that indicated something was wrong, like the light not being lit or uh, some signals that the lighthouse would give because he lived on an elevated point on the island and could see over to the lighthouse. Yeah, and I think they even had like a long baton kind of thing that they could put out on the catwalk to like signal, hey, we need you yeah. know, assistance. So, yeah. That was necessary because there was no radio connection, obviously, in the beginning when they built it. I think in 1925, the lighthouse was one of the first lighthouses in Scotland to receive wireless telegraphy. But of course, this is way after our story takes place. Yeah. And as we said, construction of the white 23 meters or 75 feet tall lighthouse was completed in 1899. And on 7th of December 1899, the light behind the Fresnel lens was lit for the very first time. The light was a paraffin, or uh, you might maybe know it as kerosene, lamp that needed more than 20 barrels of the highly combustible liquid to be powered per year. The crew of the lighthouse on Flannan Isle seemed to have usually consisted of four men, with always three being on duty and one being over on the Isle of Lewis for relief. And then obviously they would cycle through. Now, what were their duties except for making sure that the light was burning during the night and that the lens was moving properly? So they had to do things like cleaning and maintaining the lamp and lens, checking and documenting weather and water conditions, checking markers and buoys, documenting everything in a logbook, cleaning and maintaining the buildings, keeping an inventory and so on. I mean, you can imagine what kind of things people do when they're on an island, right? There's literally nothing else to do. <laughs> It's just it was, there was nothing else nothing. to do, exactly. Yeah. It's just a lighthouse on a rock. That's it. And it was a tough job. Isolated, dangerous. I mean, you were sitting on a bunch of highly flammable liquid on a rocky island with winds and waves and no way to communicate with the outside world. And for all that, in my opinion, the pay wasn't great either. I mean, not bad, yeah. but not great. I think it was maybe good money for the amount of work usually involved, though, because they didn't really have... There were always people who wanted the job, right? Yeah. I think it was a desired job, but I don't know. If you look at it from today, you have to take so many things into consideration. So it could be super dangerous at times. You were isolated for a prolonged period. You are away from your family. But that was not the only thing that could cause the lighthouse keepers to develop some form of mental health issue. For a long time, it was believed that the solitude was responsible for the high rate of suicide and, you know, all other forms of, I don't know, back then they would say madness. Sure. But I read a super interesting article that there was something else contributing 
to this kind of mental health issues. And on the oldsaltblog.com by Rick Spillman, I found the following article. There are several of the kind, but I think I, he explained it the most nice, sensible way. Yeah. yeah. Quote, Fresnel lenses were the great lighthouse innovation of the 19th century. The lenses developed by French physicist Augustin Jean Fresnel greatly increased the intensity and range of the lighthouse beacon. For rotating lights, just as important as the strength of the light, however, was maintaining a specific speed of rotation, so that if the chart said that the light flashed every 20 seconds, the light in fact rotated so that the light was visible every 20 seconds. Uh, I think that's how the people on the ships could identify which... Uh, lighthouse it was because they had different kinds of uh, flashing. Yes. Yep. The article continues. The best near-zero friction bearing of the day was created by floating the light and the lens on a circular track of liquid mercury. When dust, dirt or other impurities built up in the mercury, part of the lighthouse keeper's job was to strain the mercury through a fine cloth. Though not understood at the time, mercury is a deadly poison. One of the symptoms of mercury poisoning can be the onset of madness. Those involved in the manufacture of hats in the 18th and 19th centuries also suffered from mercury poisoning, becoming as, quote, mad as a hatter, end quote. As the old saying went, like the hatters of the day, the lighthouse keepers were being driven mad by exposure to mercury fumes, end quote. Oh. I think we all remember when we talked about that in our yeah. Victorian death episodes. Yes, the old Danbury shakes. Mm. I think now in hindsight, we look back and say, you know, oh, look how much, you know, they suffered and how dangerous it was. But when you look at where this island is on a map, it is really pretty remote, you know, and so I think that at that time period, it would have been a good job. Like all the jobs you would have maybe had at that time would have been very dangerous if you lived in that particular yeah, area, right? Like um, now we know all about mercury poisoning and f psychological isolation and whatnot. But back then, I don't know. I think it would have been, it's like you leave the north coast of Scotland and there's the Isles and then the next stop is Iceland. <laughs> it's like you're just, there's just it's nothing. True, yeah. It's, you know. No, I don't know. I think they were very brave, hardy stock. That yeah, I think we agree that that was the case here. So I don't. Know, if I would have to work on an island with a lighthouse, I would prefer the Caribbean, definitely. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> no, I want to live in that one that's just covered in ice all year. <laughs> just gonna do an Elsa. Oh, could you imagine? Okay, now we're in December of 1900, so pretty much one year after the light has been lit for the first time. And on the island, at that moment, are three men. There's James Ducart, he was the principal keeper, then Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. And the last man, MacArthur, was not part of the regular crew. Uh, he had taken over for a sick member of the regular rotation crew. Mm. And then on relief on the Isle of Lewis is another regular team member, Joseph Moore. And on the 15th of December, the steamer Arctor passed Eileen Moore on its way from Philadelphia to Leith, and they found that the light in the tower was not lit. They did not think too much of it, probably it was due to the horrible weather condition at the time or some other malfunction, but they made sure to report the incident to the Northern Lighthouse Board once they reached Leith three days later on 18th of December 1900. The NLB, as the name might have already given away, is the Scottish Lighthouse Authority and its response for all marine navigation aids on the northern coast. 
so the missing light is reported but there's not much that can be done at the moment anyway because as we said there's just no way to reach the lighthouse there's no phone no telegraph nothing but hey only two days later so on 20th of December the lighthouse relieved tender ship a vessel named Hesperus under the command of Captain James Harvey was supposed to go over to Aline Moore anyway you know to return Joseph Moore to his post and to take one of the crew with them for relief and you know to bring goods and material they needed so they are going there anyway they can check what is going on with the light and they can see what needs to be fixed because something had to be broken right what else could possibly be the problem but the 20th came and went and the Hesperus could not make its way to Eileen Moore because the weather condition was too bad and the sea too rough. There was just no way for the ship to land on the island. But then, finally, on the afternoon of 26th of December 1900, so Boxing Day, that day the Hesperus could land on Eileen Moor, but something was off. First of all, there was no flag on the flagpole. None of the usual preparations on the landing docks. There were not the, the provision boxes out for restock. But the most uncommon thing, nobody was there to greet them. Not a mm. sight of any of the three keepers was to be seen, even though they'd blown their horn to reiterate their arrival. I mean, that's clearly a bad sign. Imagine you are on an island, you are waiting for restock or for your replacement to come because you are going on relief. Mm -hmm. And the ship you're waiting for is six days late. I mean, you would be there to greet them at any time of the day. They didn't even need to blow their horn. You would just... No, exactly. You know, watching yeah. that ocean. Oh, yeah. There's literally nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else to do. Plus, they'd be waiting. The lighthouse wasn't working, so they would have been expecting someone to arrive with help. You know? It's ominous. It's very ominous. And that was the thought of the crew and Joseph Moore as well. So, the captain sent the relief keeper, uh, Joseph Moore, to investigate, which also makes sense. You know, he's the one most familiar with the island and the habits yeah. of the lighthouse keepers. Certainly, he'll figure out where they are and what's happening. Maybe they all have food poisoning. Who can say? So they ate a bad muscle. They've got it coming out both ends. It's just a nightmare. Or a puffin. Yeah, they ate a, a bad puffin. And now they're punished. Yeah, so he makes his way up the cliff, which already, no thanks, and toward the lighthouse. And he was later quoted in various articles saying that he had a sense of dread as he was ascending the 160 steps. Three black seabirds were circling around him, is how the uh, story goes. And the lighthouse was towering there in silence, just not a sound to be heard, not a man-made noise to be heard. And so finally Joseph enters and finds nothing, not a single soul. But he did find several clues. The clock had stopped working. On the dining table, there were three plates with some food still on it, meat, potatoes, pickles. A chair was toppled over. In the sleeping quarters, the beds were unmade, and there was only one oilskin coat left at the lighthouse, meaning two of the coats were gone. Oilskin coats would have been like heavy rain, you know, weather gear. The lamp on top of the tower was completely filled and ready to be lit. All the gates and doors were firmly closed. And, of course, these clues were interesting, but they didn't answer the big question, which was, where were the three missing lighthouse keepers? All the things that they found on the island just led to more questions. So Captain Harvey sent a message to the NLB that read, quote, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, so mean. Yeah, sorry, buddy. 
The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station, but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs, or drowned trying to secure a crane, or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left more MacDonald, buoy master, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. End quote. Okay. Good old days. Just stay at the telegraph office until I decide to wire you back, please. Yes. And... Sidebar, Oban was one of my late husband's favorite scotch whiskeys. <laughs> my uh, Philips, too. Is it? <laughs> That's good to know. Mm-hmm. I'll have to look for it in duty-free when we come over. All right. So, yeah, we feel a little bit bad for the buoy master and the occasional, but we get it. You know, it's it would be understood what was meant by that. On the island, the search continues, and so far, everything's in working order. And... They can't figure out what's going on. But then they reach the second landing spot, the one that's on the west side of the island, and there they find some damage. And it was most likely caused by the storm during the last weeks. So some iron railings had been loosened from the concrete and were bent over, which is, that is significant. That is a box that was located at roughly 33 meters, so 108 feet above sea level that was on a crane, had been broken open and the contents of the box were found strewn about the surrounding area. Also a stone that was weighing more than a ton. It seems like it had like fallen from the cliff onto this like landing area. Also some turf had been ripped from the cliff, which I'm guessing was probably part of when that rock let go. Yeah. Maybe. Seems like that would make sense, right? So on the 29th of December, the superintendent of the NLB, the man who was also mentioned in Captain Harvey's message, Mr. Robert Muirhead, he arrived on the island for further investigation. And he had actually known all three missing men personally because he was the one who had recruited all of them. He was taken to the cliff on the west side to look at the damage, and he noted, quote, some of the damage was difficult to believe unless actually seen, end quote. I mean, if people say that who have been around cliffs and the sea and and stormy weather all their life, we can imagine that's yeah, a lot of damage. A lot of damage. A lot of damage. They examined the remaining clothes of the keepers as well as other belongings and, of course, the logbook. An entry from Thomas Marshall on 12 December read, quote, Severe winds, the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years, end quote. And he goes on about how the main keeper, Mr. Ducat, was very quiet during the storm and that the replacement keeper, MacArthur, he had apparently started crying, which it's... It's a little odd because there's just no explanation, and so I don't know why he'd have noted it. And this was supposedly a really large bear of a man who was an experienced mariner. He was also said to be, like, short-tempered and known to get into brawls. So he seems like, from what little we know of him, you know, not the sort of person who a storm would make cry. 
right? Like, yeah. that's the crying bit is always like, what, you know, and well, I think that's led a lot of people to say, what? More on that later. We shouldn't forget that this is a different time back then. Even if he would have felt scared or there would have been some other problem with him, he probably right. wouldn't have cried right. in front of other men, usually. No, I think you're probably right, especially because he was the one that that they didn't really know, right? Unless they were all drunk, because drunk crying was acceptable. Oh, well, drunk crying is always acceptable. Were they allowed to have alcohol? Did they have? Do you know? I never saw anything about that. I have no idea if they were allowed, but I'm pretty sure. I would have had some whiskey to keep warm. But if you want to cry and you live by the water, just go walk by the water, because no one can tell you're crying. Uh, I don't know. In another entry, Marshall mentions that the three of them had kept praying during the storm, so it must have been a really bad storm if the three of them were praying I together. Mean, I mean, this is a time when people... But I don't find that exceptionally... No, no, I don't, I don't find, find it, it weird. I mean, they're praying, yeah, they're quiet. No, I don't find it weird, but I do find that... A mention that the three of them kept praying, to me, only indicates that this was really something more than the ordinary... It was yeah, bad. Yeah, it was bad. Yeah. And in the last entry, which is 15th of December, that reads, quote, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all, end quote. And we're going to come back and look at the logbook in a little while, but I just want to tell you the end of the initial investigation first. So after looking at all of the evidence and all of the damage on the island, Mir had concluded that Ducat and Marshall had gone to the West Landing Point in their coats to try and fix damage or save what could be saved, I think presumably after a wave event, weather event, and that MacArthur had stayed behind, as was according to the NLB regulations, because the lighthouse was never to be left unattended. But at some point, MacArthur must have left the lighthouse without his protective raincoat, right? So Muirhead came to the following conclusion, quote, I am of the opinion that the most likely explanation of this disappearance of the men is that they had all gone down on the afternoon of Saturday, 15 December, to the proximity of the West Landing to secure the box with the mooring ropes, etc., and that an unexpectedly large roller had come up on the island and a large body of water going up higher than where they were and coming down upon them had swept them away with resistless force, end quote. And this makes absolute sense, right? It does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then... The question is, why was this disappearance ever considered a mystery? It's still considered a mystery to this day. I mean, sure, there are three men that had just vanished without a trace, uh, and they stayed gone, and not a single piece of them has ever been found. But Muirhead's explanation made absolute sense. They had been sitting down for lunch, or something like this, somehow realized what was going on on the western landing point, and they ran to try and save the crane, uh, the box, and the content of the box, and then they were just swept away. But I guess people started to talk and speculate about this because some of the things just didn't make sense to them. For example, why did only two of them wear the protective gear? Why had all three of them left the lighthouse and therefore breached NLB regulations? Why was the chair thrown like someone had jumped up in an absolute frenzy? Why would they even knowingly risk their life for this box or this crane in the middle of the storm? So you see, there were a couple of good questions and so lore was spun and theories were formed to try and explain what had happened on Flannan in December of 1900. But I can explain at least one of the questions. 
Why would they risk their life to save some replaceable equipment? Well, apparently only a short while before, Thomas Marshall had already been fined five shillings for losing some of the equipment. And if you work hard to feed your family in a job that keeps you away from them for a prolonged time, losing some of your income is actually really bad. It's it's not only bad because you lose money, it's also bad for your... It's It does something to you. Yeah. So yeah, saving this equipment could have very well been worth it in the eyes of the three men. Yeah, I'd say we go through the theories we know of and see what it's all about, right? Yeah, I agreed. Okay. I start with the more unlikely ones, at least <laughs> I think in both of our eyes. Yeah. A sea serpent ate the three men. I don't know, I'd call this one of the more unlikely theories. It goes right along with the men have been turned into big black seabirds or they were taken away by a ghost ship. I think this one comes from the mystical aura that surrounds Aline more, you know, with yeah. the, the pilgrimage site and all that stuff that was going on before the lighthouse was built. I would very much like to be Team Sea Serpent, but <laughs> I'm... Yeah, no, I don't think it was a sea serpent. And I think those birds, so there was this whole thing about how the three birds were the spirits of the three men, like you said, but yeah. I'm pretty sure they were just birds who were like, yay, a quiet place to rest. <laughs> and look, the humans have finally fucked off. You yeah. know? Yeah. What? I think so too. Uh, next one, the men were kidnapped by pirates or some say kidnapped by foreign spies. I don't know. I don't know how common pirates were in 1900 at the Scottish coast. <laughs> But okay, let's assume it could also include smugglers or other maritime criminals. It could be possible. Maybe not kidnapped. Yeah. Maybe the smugglers or pirates or spies came to the island during the storm and the keepers saw something they shouldn't have seen and had to pay for it with their lives. And the bodies, they just were dumped somewhere in the ocean, right? I don't know. They had higher ground. So I don't know what pirates would necessarily <laughs> want with... I don't know. And I think... I don't know. I don't think outsiders could have overtaken them with their higher ground. Yeah, not easily, no. But if they were... Many pirates, smugglers, spies, <laughs> and they might have gotten two of them by surprise somewhere outside of the lighthouse, and then just one was left, and... Now I've got Gilbert no. and Sullivan in my head. So, yeah, it's possible. I don't think it's probable. Yeah. All right, what's next? What's next? The three men left the island and started a new life somehow, somewhere, possibly because of debt. I don't know. I guess it's possible in theory, of course, they would have needed someone with a boat to come and pick them up. I could see this for one man, mm -hmm. but all three, all three together, all of th all, all three of them are so miserable with their current life that all of them decide <laughs> that they want to start a new one, leave their families behind. Yeah, I no, know. I don't buy this one either. And, you know, I think... Two of them were married with, with children. I know one of them had children. I'm not sure if the other one had children, but was definitely married. And by all accounts, they were happy. And so this sounds like the kind of thing a loved one hopes happened, right? Like when Adam was killed, I kept thinking, I wish he just left me and started a new life. You know, it's magical thinking. I don't think it happened here. Yeah, I think that's the kind of same category as kidnapped children are adopted by a loving family. Yeah, exactly. Or like if you lose a pet and you just assume that someone found it and is it's yeah. theirs now. Yeah, um, which is always the case. Every time you lose a pet, that's what happens. And, you know, the other thing is there was a small rowboat 
that could be lowered. I think it was on the western site, like in that same area. And it was like a boat that could be lowered from the cliffside on ropes, kind of like a Titanic lifeboat sort of scenario. And it was gone, but it was gone in a way that seemed to indicate that it was like ripped away. Uh, from its moorings in a storm or by the sea serpent or whatever had caused all the other damage they found because it wasn't found missing in a way suggesting someone just lowered it and rode away, right? Like it would have, they could tell, I guess. To understand the next one, you need to know that some believe that there was actually no storm from the 12th of December, as it's stated in the logbook, but that the storms had only started on 17th of December. So one of the theories says, if the man could not have been washed off the cliff, maybe somehow a fight ensued and that is the reason that they fell off the cliff. And of course, the most likely suspect to start a fight was the only non-regular team member, Donald MacArthur, who was also said to have some anger management issues. I think it's not nice that just because he's the he's the occasional one <laughs> that yeah. he's immediately suspected to be the troublemaker, right? I agree. It could also be two people that work together regularly that some have so much tension going on. I mean, it's possible. It's possible. But then for the theory, why were all three of them on the cliff? Why did all three of them leave the lighthouse? Did MacArthur run after the other two? But then why? Yeah. And what was the fight about? Yeah, and the the disparity in the recorded dates of a bad storm gives me the most confusion in this case. I don't... That's the bit about this yeah. where it's like, I don't understand that aspect another one one of them killed the other two again most likely suspect for most here is MacArthur. and then what what happened to the murderer did he somehow leave the island did he himself die was he washed off the cliff himself so that might have explained the log discrepancies if one of them did kill the other two and then recorded storms that didn't happen so that he could say it was awful. They were swept away. And, you know, even if their bodies washed up, there'd be no way to prove cause of death, right? After the sort of battering a body would take in waves against the rocks. Yeah, but I don't know. Was it proven? I mean, we're going to talk about the logbook. Yeah, I mean. In just a few minutes. But if the logbook entry was written by Marshall, did they know it? Did they know it from the handwriting or did it just... Signed by Marshall. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. The logbook is the thing that bothers me. The, well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But yeah. And, you know, you keep hearing people always say, well, not people always say, but one of the theories you see pop up all the time is that one of them killed the other two and then died by suicide. But. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. But then how did he do it so that his body was never discovered? I guess he would have needed to jump off the cliff. And I think if he did that, then yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Or he had already killed them and was writing in the logbook to kind of, you know, create a fake narrative. Maybe. I don't know. And then actually there was a terrible storm and he was swept away because he was the only one left. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, what about the weird logbook entries? What about them leaving the lighters in such a hurry? What about the chair and the stopped clock? I mean, I think the stopped clock is easy to explain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's no mystery there because clocks had to be wound then. Yeah. Also, the the, the chimney was cold. You know, the ashes in the fireplace yeah. were cold. So it's just nobody had been there, we know, for probably a week. So no mystery. Yeah. No mystery. So the chair 
actually it looks as if the story of the chair and the mostly untouched meals were added to the story way later by newspaper articles because what Joseph Moore, so the relief keeper, had actually reported when he returned from the lighthouse was, quote, the kitchen utensils were all very clean, which is a sign that it must be after dinner sometime they left, end quote. Mm. And the logbook entries... Well, first of all, I personally, I don't find them that ominous. As I said, if MacArthur was crying, maybe he had one or two glasses of whiskey and, maybe. you know. Maybe he had a case of the morbs. Yeah. Yeah. Second of all, it looks as if they don't actually exist. Yeah, that's the real problem here, I think. So (laughs) to quote from history.co.uk, quote, The logbook entries were injected into the story several years after Marshall, Ducat, and MacArthur disappeared. There is no evidence they ever existed as the 14 times journalist Mike Dash discovered after carrying out his own investigation, end quote. So again, this is probably all just, you know, legend, lore. Yeah. Uh, So... Okay, my opinion, and I hate when this happens. I hate when we look into a case and then you're like, oh, uh, it's, yeah, this is <laughs> boring. Yeah. I think the most logical explanation is the most likely one in this case. I think Muirhead was spot on and the three men had tried to rescue the equipment and they were washed away into the stormy sea. Yeah, I think something similar happened. I think the fact that there was always supposed to be someone inside the lighthouse and the fact that one set of weather gear remained... I think that sort of backs up the idea that something happened to two of the men while they were performing their duties. And I think the third rushed out to help and then was also swept away. There could have also been a rogue or just unexpectedly large wave, which would account for the damage. We did a transatlantic crossing once uh, on a ship from England to Florida in November, and the seas were really, really rough, really rough seas. They had to cancel shows because, like, the set pieces were falling over, like, chairs were falling over. It was really rough seas. We weren't bothered by it, but because most of the restaurants were closed because people were struggling to carry trays, um, we decided to just stay in the room and get, like, room service and just watched movies in our bathrobes. It was great. And the way our bed was positioned on the ship, we were facing the front, so we were rising up and then cresting down, you know, so, like... Like you're supposed to do, you head into the waves. It's soothing if you don't get seasick. I enjoy it. And I think we were sort of almost drifting off. And suddenly there was a big left to right swing where like I crashed into him in bed and the closet door was flung open and stuff fell off shelves. And then the next day, everybody was like, did you feel the rogue wave? (laughs) So I guess there had been one wave that just came at us sideways. But the seas on that trip got a lot calmer once we were in the more open ocean. But before that, when we were a lot closer to the coast of Great Britain, the seas were really, really rough. Like the owner's suite balcony had all the glass blown out from the waves. I really wanted to find those people and ask if they got a refund. I would be so mad if you couldn't go on your balcony of this incredibly expensive suite because anyway, my point being the ocean is dangerous and they put a lighthouse there. (laughs) Listen, (laughs) moral of the story. I love cruising. So dangerous. But they put a lighthouse there to prevent ships from being blown or washed into these islands that were really just big rocks in the North Atlantic. So I don't think it takes too much of a stretch of the imagination to believe there may have been a rogue wave. There may have been some unusually high seas, but the island showed clear signs of damage from the ocean. I think it's the most logical explanation. It's not the most 
most exciting or salacious, but there's just no proof that there was anything nefarious done by any member of the crew. And I'm sure they have living descendants. So I think it's, I don't know, it just feels crappy to insinuate that one of them was a murderer when I think they were all, you know, probably tragically killed on the job. I know a lot of people who don't love this theory are like, well, why didn't they find the bodies then? But it's an area with rough seas and I'm sure it's got insane currents and tides and sea monsters, things that live underneath that, you know, it's the circle of life. I don't know. And also the coasts in that area would not have been very populated, you know, compared to today. It's not like there's loads of people living in the area and walking on beaches who might stumble across a body. Like, I would assume there would be huge stretches of either island or mainland shoreline where bodies could wash up and would never be found. Not a lot of people walking their dogs in the morning there. No. At that time. Not at that time. No. The West Landing part of the islands where the West Landing was situated, it was apparently placed close to a rather narrow cleft. Mm. This cleft could cause strong waves that hit to almost explode. Do you know what I mean? So it goes I know exactly. into that cleft and the wave explodes with a lot of force up, in, Straight up, up. high in the air. Yep. I've got video of places exactly like this. I've seen them in all over the coasts. Yep, Hawaii and... I mean, that would explain why the damage was found in such a great height, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's possible that MacArthur, who had stayed behind at the lighthouse, he saw strong or high waves approaching and he knew what's going to happen there at that cleft, right? So Mm -hmm. he ran to warn his mates. Yep. And that would, of course, explain the toppled over chair, if the chair was toppled over. But again, if you run out in a hurry, that's quite possible. And it also explains why he wasn't wearing his oil skin. But it doesn't explain why all the doors and gates were firmly closed. But I suppose the door could have fallen shut when he ran out. But a gate, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, That's what I think. It's possible that it snaps back into place, right? I think because we know it's always a windy area, like it's always, always, it's never not windy there. It's always windy. So I think it's reasonable to think also that the wind could have just slammed shut the door at some point, you know? What we don't know is how the the doors and the gates, well, the doors, how they look, yeah, but the gate, how it was secured, how it was closed. Right. If it was closed with a hook, for example, then then that would be something we'd say, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think... You know what I mean? Right. I Yeah, I think that eventually... It's funny in, in my house because it's so weird and drafty that every so often a door will just slam. And I know it's... I don't think it's a ghost. I know it's just, you know, there was a gust of wind if we have windows open or whatever. I think... I think the gates and doors... That doesn't... That part doesn't bother me. Yeah. I don't know. It's just tough. It's hard. Even if we think we know what happened, of course, we can never be entirely sure. And yeah, this story leaves a lot of room for wild speculations. Yeah. We would really like to know what you hellions out there think happened. What's what's your theory? There's the movie The Vanishing with Shira Butler. Mm-hmm. I haven't watched it in two or three years, I think. As far as I remember, the explanation they had... I mean, it's all fictional, right? But it was a mix between several theories, and I'm not going to spoil it. And also the the movie The Lighthouse with uh, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. It's yeah. also loosely based on okay. that, but more on the on the mythological side. Well, yeah, I haven't seen either of them. And these islands had a lot of mythological superstition around them for a long time. I think yeah. before the light even existed. Like, I think shepherds used to bring sheep to eat the grass, which 
if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was like if you had a pregnant sheep and you brought you brought the pregnant sheep over to eat the grass, the, the sheep would have twins. So you'd have an extra head added to your, your count. And if you had a sick sheep and you brought it over to graze, it would be healed. I know that was one of the things I think that they believed. So, and you know, this area, I think was sort of an ancient place with a lot of spiritual sort of history, if that makes sense. So when this happened, it would have taken on a bit of the supernatural, even if they knew absolutely what happened and there was a reasonable explanation. There are a lot of places like that, you know, where just because something happens there, it must be a bit... Yeah, definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Uh, before I forget it, I want to add that um, somewhere in the 1970s, I would have to learn, I think it was 72 or 75, the lighthouse light was completely automated. So there is no lighthouse keeper there anymore since the 1970s. So nobody's living there. No more lighthouse keepers. No. Which is probably for the best. There are a lot of beautiful places where I'd love to live in a lighthouse, but this this one would be yeah. tough. This would be This would be pretty tough. Yeah. So... All right, something good. Uh, my something good is just I needed something lighthearted to watch the last couple of days and so decided to re-watch The Good Place. And it's so funny. I, still, I love it. Oh, it's so good. Ted <laughs> Danson is so funny in it. He is. It's so funny. We really, really enjoy The Good Place. We've just started watching his new show. Have you seen the... Is it The Mayor or Mr. Mayor? Nope. He has a new show, which we've watched a few episodes of and it's so far it's... It's good. But yeah, The Good Place is awesome if you've never watched it. That's a great recommendation. Mine is Scotland. I love you, Scotland. My dad, I just found out, has a ton of Scottish ancestry. And so we're actually hoping to go to Scotland last <laughs> this year, but maybe next year now. So I wanted to recommend the book series Outlander by Diana Gableden, which is now a series. Uh, the books are really good. I never watched it. I never read it. So this show has sexed it up a bit. The first book is pretty sexy. The first book is definitely kind of a romance, basic, basic premise, World War II nurse. Her husband is home on leave or he's finished with the war, can't quite remember. And they go on a like quick little second honeymoon to Scotland where she wanders into an ancient stone circle and is transported several hundred years back in time. And it goes from there. And the rest of the books are, it's historical fiction, so it's like interspersed with real happenings. So like Culloden happens and then, you know, the American Revolution and all this kind of different stuff. Really enjoyable. The books are great and the series is good. The two stars, two of the male stars in it have also done this Men in Kilts, which is a road trip. So that's fun. Also the film So I Married an Axe Murderer, which I can quote start to finish, I think, if you need something light, along with one of my best friends, Suze, from college. We used to watch that. And there's a there's a good bit about a piper in that film that just cracks me up every time. And the show that we've still been watching, Men in Kilts, which is the two guys from Outlander, both very handsome men. And they just had a bit about bagpipes, which was great. And I was telling Paul how when Adam and I got married in England, when I told Adam I wanted a piper, he was like, uh, we don't really do that here. We're not Scottish. Like, we're English. And I was adamant. I was like, no, your Uncle Robin is from Scotland. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> he was like, oh, Okay. And I was like, if anyone gives you any shit about it, just roll your eyes and be like, Americans, I love you, Scotland, even if, to quote, so I married an axe murderer, most of your food is based on a dare. I've never been. It's on my list. Oh, let's go. It'll be so good. I want to go hiking there because uh, Scotland allows wild camping off the road. So. Oh, 
No. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll text me. I'll text you from my hotel room. Um, <laughs> Paul would enjoy that. He he did a thing where he rode his motorcycle around the United States and just wild camped wherever he could and camped in national parks the rest of the time. It was like three three month trip or something. But yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. And we love you. We appreciate you. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review. We would very much appreciate it. If you are interested in our Patreon, uh, go to patreon.com and search for Fresh Hell or go to our webpage, freshhellpodcast.com. There you'll find all the links to our merch store, to our Patreon, to our PO box, to our email. Patreon is growing. We are setting up monthly game nights for one of our tiers. And yeah, it's fun. You can always tell us what kind of topics we should discuss over there. It's just not the usual murder mystery macabre. It's more of a chatty type of, yeah. I don't know. More more thing. of the sidebar stuff. Like if you like yeah, our sidebars. Exactly. <laughs> and we're still kind of working it out. Right now we're sort of doing topics. So it just feels awkward to talk to each other because you guys want to hear us talk, which <laughs> we're getting there. My whole life I've been told I talk too much and keep my mouth shut, so it feels uncomfortable now to be asked to speak. Oof. All right, uh, what else? You can come say hi in our Facebook group. That's where you're going to find all the albums. So if you join our Facebook group, search for Fresh Hell Murder. That will get you into the correct group. And then once you're there, you will find, if you scroll across the top, there's like all different categories and eventually you'll see albums and if you click on that every episode has an album and that is where you will find the photographs of things that we promise to post and you'll also find our sources there and you will also uh, be able to ask us any questions or discuss the episode so it's a great group of people like really such a great group of people so come say hi speaking of saying hi tell your pets we said hi hug them cuddle them treat them always kindly and tell them we love them that was a really smooth segue we're right. getting good at we sound professional <laughs> listen to us happy two-year anniversary by the way we forgot our anniversary yes completely two years two years Jesus. we're already an old couple we completely forgot so, as we like to end every episode, if you if you haven't been listening from the beginning, I like to, to end the episode with one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes, which is from the Second World War. And it's a quote that's just helped me during some of the roughest patches in my life. And so, we always like to remind all of you that if you are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.